Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report. My name is Andrew Hall. I'm the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. And I'm joined by Christina Rossetti, the Nonfiction Book Review Editor. Hello, Christina. Hi. And today we're very pleased to welcome Christine Hagelin, the author of Eugene England, a Mormon Liberal. Christine is a writer, editor, and independent scholar, and the former editor at Dialogue from 2009 to 2015. She's a blogger at many sites, including By Common Consent. She was a series editor of the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introductions to the Book of Mormon. She holds degrees in German literature from Harvard and the University of Michigan. Christine, welcome. Thanks. It's really great to be with you. You are the youngest editor of Dialogue. I've been reading your blogs at By Common Consent for years. What got you involved in Mormon studies? Um, it's a kind of funny story. I I realized after finishing a master's degree in German literature that uh, there were not going to be any academic jobs, and I didn't love it enough to write a dissertation just for fun. Um, so I stopped and had um, babies and decided to be home with them. Um, I had three babies in three and a half years, which meant that I spent many, many, many Sundays walking around the halls of church. And there was one Sunday when my frustration boiled over and I thought, why are we doing this? Why do I take my children to church? What's why? And a little bit later, I calmed down a bit and I started wondering, well, when did we start taking kids to church? Because I, I knew that practices had been different in the past, but I didn't know really what the history was. And so I had been friends with Claudia and Richard's son, Serge, in college and happened to still be in touch with him. And so I wrote him a note and said, I, I need to talk to your mom. I have this question. And if anyone in the world knows, it'll be her. Um, so I wrote Claudia and said, why do we take kids to church? And when did we start? And she said, well, I don't know. But there is this one quote I know from Brigham Young who said that children should be left at home. So, you know, at least back then it wasn't common. And I'm running a seminar at BYU this summer with Richard on the history of Mormon women in the 20th century. So why don't you apply and come study this question? And I you know, thought, well, did you miss the part where I have three kids <laughs> that are very little and very needy? And of course, she hadn't missed it, but she had done her PhD while she had six little needy kids and it was not impressed with my three. And so I took my sister with me to Provo and spent a summer doing research with Claudia ended up writing a paper about primary songs that was eventually published in Dialogue. And then a couple of years later, when Dialogue was looking for a new editor, Claudia was on the board and suggested my name. And so they came to me and suggested that I apply. That's how it got started, really completely by accident. Well, how about Eugene England? What drew you to studying him? Um, I had always loved his writing. I can't remember exactly when I first encountered his writing. I grew up in a house that was very devoutly Mormon, but also quite open. Um, my father published an essay in Dialogue in 1972 or 73 when I was little. So we had Dialogue and BYU Studies in my house. I got a copy of Jim Allen and Glenn Leonard's History of the Latter-day Saints as a present for my baptism from my parents. So anyway, it, it had kind of always been in the air, and I really don't remember when I first read Jean. I think I got a picture book for my baptism. <laughs> yeah, uh, my my father in particular had very little concept of age-appropriate reading material. <laughs> really, Joe and Matt asked me. Um, this is a, a theme in my um, life is that jobs have tended to find me jobs and projects um, rather than me going out and looking for them. And so Matt knew that I liked England and 
you know, I had followed in his footsteps. And I think he and Joe both thought that in some ways I was temperamentally like England. I like finding a middle way and compromise and, and all of those things. And so they thought I would be well suited to understand and advocate for his work. I want to, I guess, ask you a little more about your own time at Dialogue, how you are part of Eugene England's legacy in a way that is beyond most people. People love Eugene England and they've read his work, but you've actually held the same role as him. Yeah. And I just want to know what that felt like, how you saw yourself as part of his legacy, all that. Um, It felt extremely daunting. My interview for Dialogue, I think it was Claudia Bushman and Armand Moss and Molly Benyon and Levi Peterson. And I've, I've told people it was like walking into a room with the Lares and Panades of my childhood having come to life. You know, these were gods. <laughs> and, and there they were asking me questions and considering me for a job. So I was most of all intimidated and scared. <laughs> but I was, I was very much the beneficiary of England's work and also of the experience of his life, which was by the time I stepped into those shoes, you know, well-documented and, and well-known to me, I was able to see in the Mormon studies conflicts of the 90s were in the past and uh, there had been sort of a, a missing generation. I was the youngest editor of Dialogue, but I was almost 40 when I started. I wasn't young. <laughs> and Many of the people my age who were in college and graduate school in the 90s saw the conflicts at BYU in the September 6th and, you know, were polarized, were either became, you know, very orthodox members of the church or just left. And I was one of not that many who who stayed in. But I did have the experience of having seen how that played out to help me think about what my role was um, in an early board meeting, there was some discussion about uh, how dialogue could change the church. And I think that was very much what Gene hoped for when he founded the journal, that was that he hoped for, for change at the highest level. And by the time I took over, I think that hope was not, I didn't have that hope anymore, or at least that hope was attenuated. Let me say it that way. I do hope that what I did made a difference, but I didn't have any illusions that the difference would come soon or that I would be able to see direct ties to what I did at Dialogue. My hope was to create a record of how thoughtful people were approaching Mormonism and to ask new questions. I think in somewhat the same way that that Jean faced the question of um, how Black members of the church should um, fit into the organization. The pressing question of the moment when I was editor and still is a pressing question is how LGBTQ members will belong in the church and can belong and how our practice and even our doctrine needs to change to accommodate the, the reality of, of their lives. I felt like what I could do Uh, was not to berate people about their positions or strenuously be an activist for for certain policy positions. Um, And so I didn't publish a lot of things that directly went to national politics or 
interchurch pastoral concerns uh, because I felt like the political and pastoral concerns had had been hashed out in a, in a lot of places and that much of what I would be doing if I um, spent a lot of time on those would be preaching to the quiet, right? Dialogue subscribers were among the members who were already sympathetic and willing to see change. And so what I hoped I could do was to move the discussion into areas like theology, where we really hadn't begun to think through. So I published Taylor Petrie's essay on a post-heterosexual Mormon theology. It was probably the most important and controversial thing that I did. And my thinking was not that somebody at the church office building was going to read that and say, aha, you know, we, here's what we should do. My hope is that in much the way that, that Lester Bush's article and some of the other articles that Jean published gave people a deeper understanding of the theological resources and the history that Mormonism could bring to bear on the issue of Blacks and the priesthood, that when the decision was made by those in authority to make changes, that dialogue could be a resource to them. And I feel like Jean's life showed a way that that intellectuals can't be influential on church policy, right? Which is by sort of directly intervening in those discussions at the highest levels of church authority. But I think what shows now in the appreciation of his work is that later as the church evolves, that people in authority can turn to those resources laid down by intellectuals to help them understand the, the possibilities. It's a different world, huh? I mean, when reading Gene's experiences at Dialogue, where he's constantly, constantly in contact with general authorities, yeah. he's going and visiting them and talking to them. That's probably something you couldn't imagine when you were at Dialogue, right? No, um, and and I think it's a little bit maybe temperament that you know he directly sought them out, and I would never have dared. But it's also just a, a function of the way the church changed in those years, right? When when Gene was a child, general authorities came to state conference. You know, members of the twelve came to state conference all the time. And by the time I was a child, you know, that only happened in gigantic arenas that seated 20,000 people. And you just didn't have that kind of personal contact. I also never lived in Utah, which I think changes one's perspective on how close general authorities are. But I think even living in Salt Lake, you know, there's a, there's a gulf that um, exists yeah. now that just seems unbridgeable um, and that I wouldn't have attempted to bridge. And uh, certainly they did not reach out to me <laughs> to ask me about anything. Well, tell me about the subtitle, A Mormon Liberal. Why, why do you use that? Well, in part, I uh, use it because the naming convention of the series is name colon a Mormon X, where X is supposed to be one or two words. So I didn't, I didn't have a lot of control over the choice of subtitle. I wavered between teacher and liberal because certainly a huge part of what's important about Gene is his work as a teacher. But that's true of lots of people, and I thought that liberal distinguished him more. He, he thought about what liberal meant, what liberal and conservative meant in the context of Mormonism, and he thought about them both politically and in terms of, of Mormon culture, where they mean something a little bit different than, you know, when, when Protestants talk about liberal Christianity, they mean something that hasn't ever existed in Mormonism and can't. So Gene's not referring to that, but he certainly knew about it and knew what it was. So he was thoughtful about the way that he used the terms. And I mean the term in somewhat the same way as he used it in his final address to the English department at BYU when he said, you know, the Book of Mormon contains accounts of people who are both liberal and 
conservative and and conservative we understand well in the church as you know clinging to the firm principles of the gospel and um, being unwavering in the face of danger or, or threat liberal also means caring about the principles of the gospel including the principle that we ought to be seeking truth to be searching to be questing so he understood those terms. He, he thought neither should be pejorative, that those should, should be descriptive terms that people used for positions and orientations to gospel principles and practices rather than totalizing labels for people, um, totalizing and alienating. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book was the end, the bibliographic essay that you offered. And you said it, it's a, and it, it is a roadmap for understanding and diving into Eugene England's work, um, which for me, who doesn't focus on the LDS church, it was really helpful to me. Um, and I was wondering how you selected which issues to focus on, why those issues stood out to you in terms of Jean's work. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about that, about the highlights that you focused on. Yeah. I don't know that there was a lot of method in my <laughs> conglomeration. I, I sort of looked at looked at the titles of his essays and, and the things that I had read and, and those themes emerged pretty organically to me. His essays really do sort of cluster naturally. I mean, I just, I made some headings and listed some things and it didn't feel like there was a lot of creative input from me in that. It just was a taxonomy of, of what he wrote about. It would have been interesting to look chronologically to try to, to organize that essay chronologically and see whether he, you know, clustered around certain themes at certain times. But I don't think he did. One of the things that was most interesting to me was that I felt like even by the time he got to BYU, you know, in the in the late 70s, most of the themes that he would spend his career writing about were at least nascent in in his work. Like he he had a few really key insights quite early that he spent his life working out. And so clustering thematically rather than chronologically seemed like it made a lot more sense. Can I ask about some of the problems that Gene had with general authorities, some kind of private, and then at least one very big public dust-up, questions about the atonement, how the atonement works, and then most of all, this public debate that he had in 1980 with First, uh, Professor Joseph Fielding McConkie, and then his father, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, about uh, the nature of God. I think with General uh, Mormon, these would seem like kind of minor things. I mean, I guess it's about the nature of, of Christ and God, and so they are very important. But you know, they're they're kind of theological arguments that I think most Mormons would not see the import of. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this was such a big deal to both England and the McConkies? Uh, why were they both so passionate about these issues? Yeah, it's a good question. And because I wasn't writing a traditional biography, I have not done as much sort of digging into the his interactions with, with general authorities. I've read through his letters in the archives, but didn't do a lot of sort of corroborating interviews to talk to people about mm. how those went. And so I think um, in particular, the question about atonement came up more often in his words and stakes. So there's not as much of a, an obvious record that I read. I tried to focus mostly on public writing since my job, as I understood it, was, was mostly to guide people through 
his work that they could see, you know, rather than to give them a, a story of his life. So the one time that he uh, mentions atonement, it's early. Again, his that they might not suffer is is quite an early essay, and that's as full an exposition of his atonement theory as he ever gives. And he sends it to Neil Maxwell, whom he knew from the University of Utah, and asks for his reaction. And and Maxwell is tepid. He he says, you know, that he likes some of the writing and he he praises a couple of things and he says, but I'm not sure that that overall your theory is really well grounded in the scriptures. And I, I you know, I'd be interested to see you try and flesh this out. So briefly, England's important insight on the atonement, it really comes from Lowell Benyon, from a class he had um, with Benyon on the Book of Mormon, where they're looking at Alma and and the passages about atonement. And he sets that up as that the the barrier to atonement is the individual's self-condemnation. We we condemn ourselves because sin alienates us from our highest self, and, and we recognize that, and that causes guilt. Penal substitution theory of the atonement is unsatisfactory because it doesn't make sense to us that a perfect person should step in and be punished for what we did that just on a sort of human moral sense doesn't make any sense. So he reads the atonement as God's love reaching out to us and assuring us that we are accepted despite our sin and that that is the catalyst for for repentance rather than the result of it, that Christ's atoning sacrifice makes it possible for us to be reconciled with ourselves and also with our neighbors and God. But those are less important. And I think that's where Maxwell pushes back and and where I also see his theory as not quite sufficient, right? Like personal guilt is not the only effect of sin. (laughs) Sin causes problems that that are bigger than our individual psyche. And I think a theory of atonement has to propose some mechanism for dealing with those effects that we can't fix. So anyway, I think that that was where people got bent out of shape about his atonement theory. I will say that if he was fired from BYU for Pelagian heresy. He's the only person that has ever happened to. (laughs) I find it improbable that even at BYU, academic politics are mostly grounded in theological conflict. That doesn't seem like a good explanation to me. As far as the exchange with Elder McConkie and the nature of God, this is a disagreement that has persisted in Mormonism, you know, almost from the beginning, from the lectures on faith, at least, um, you know, whether we have an omniscient, omnipotent God who is removed from human beings in in substantial ways. Hiram Smith seems to have been sympathetic to that view more than Joseph in the King Follett sermon. So it is possible to, you know, to read through the words of various apostles at various times and find people on both sides of this divide. The argument is really well worn. The tracks are laid down and um, people have tended to you know, fall into the ruts of that disagreement. There were obvious reasons for uh, McConkie to be on the side of the Hiramites and, and um, Brigdonites since that was his, you know, he married the daughter of Joseph Fielding Smith. So, you know, that's his family. That's his father-in-law and grandfather-in-law. And I, I think he probably felt it personally in a way that that England didn't anticipate and uh, certainly didn't account for in his public presentation or or his private presentation. The other thing that I think happens in in that exchange and also over and over again with Gene is that he's coming from an academic 
background and an epistemological universe where persuasion and the force of an argument and grounding it in tradition is the is the way that you promote an argument and that that arguments should carry authority as they are um, sound, logical, and and well supported. Makaki is coming from an epistemological universe where priesthood authority confers the ultimate persuasiveness on an argument. And in fact, there should be no appeal to any other kind of authority, that, that priesthood authorities should settle any disagreement immediately. So he perceives even Jean's attempt to find some compromise, some some way to account for both of their views as insubordinate and impudent in a way that um, I think Gene just, I think he was sincerely blindsided by that particular reaction. Other times, I think he was deliberately provocative and, you know, might well have anticipated some of the reactions he got. But I think he was, he was truly blindsided by McConkie's anger, you know, clear clear anger with him over what, as you say, does seem like a pretty abstract and fairly arcane um, theological discussion. Not your place. Yeah. McConkie's forceful, but, but it makes perfect sense, right? In, in the universe where he lives, you can see why, why this is a challenge. And even England's attempt to, to meet him halfway doesn't seem like halfway if you're in in that spot where this is the end there should be no more discussion it's it's an assault uh, when we were we were talking about this idea of dialogue changing the church uh, which you know mm-hmm. probably not but uh, it certainly changed not soon not soon <laughs> but it certainly changed mormon studies it certainly changed um, the academic study of mormonism and I'm thinking specifically of the pink issue. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms, especially coming from a Mormon feminist perspective, but also if you could speak to how you see dialogue still doing that kind of work that Jean initiated by really kind of being a leader in the field of Mormon studies. Yeah. And if you could ex- explain what the pink issue is for the listeners too. Sure. Jean is talking with Laurel Ulrich and Claudia Bushman and, and um, some women in Boston who were publishing The Exponent. And they proposed to him that they would like to put together an issue of dialogue. And Jean said, sure. I think he was at, at that point starting to be a feminist. He, he had lots of daughters and a brilliant wife. And so he had reasons to think about their opportunities in the world. Um, but it was new to him. I will say that having been the editor of Dialogue and knowing the kind of scramble that every issue feels like, that having anyone propose, I'd like to put together an issue of the journal <laughs> is, a, is a chance you would leap at. Um, so it's not surprising to me and wouldn't necessarily have required any great feminism on his part to say, sure, please. But he encouraged them. He, he mostly gave them free reign, as near as I can tell and as, as Laurel recalls it. It was the beginning of increased visibility for them. And it was at some cost to dialogue, right? Dialogue had was still trying at that point to achieve something like balance. And the pink issue, you know, tipped them definitely over the edge into causes that were seen as leftist. And he, you know, he was willing to take that leap. I, I need to check the date because I, I... 1971. Okay, so it's 71. So Gene is still... The editor. It's before Bob took over. Bob Reese, uh, who is the second editor. So yeah, so it's it's very early, and it, and it does 
put dialogue in in the position of, of really taking a stand and picking a side on feminist questions. It was brave in that way. And I think it also, because it sort of pushed them in that direction, it forced the question of dialogue's independence. Sort of by then it was becoming clear that approval from the brethren was not going to be forthcoming and dialogue was going to have to really embrace the independent part of its mission. And, and it did after that. And I think, Christina, what you're referring to is, is the fact that dialogue has had really complete editorial independence from the church. And that has been important over the years in various ways. The editors have had different relationships with the church and, and different postures towards the institution, but there's never been any question of, you know, somebody's bishop having veto of power over an article or, you know, somebody writing from Salt Lake and saying, don't publish this and dialogue capitulating. Um, and that has been an important space for them. And it was, it was kind of first, right? BYU Studies begins publishing a little bit before dialogue, but clearly does not have that editorial independence because of the general authorities on the board of trustees of, of BYU. So, so dialogue is first in that space. Then the Journal of Mormon History, the Association of Mormon Letters starts publishing, all of which, all of those organizations have Jean's fingerprints on them. And dialogue was the first to show what the benefits could be of independence. You compared Jean's time at Dialogue with your time at Dialogue. Can you compare yourself with Jean? How do you think you're similar or dissimilar to Jean? Oh, goodness. Um, I think I'm similar in being willing to consider almost any idea from almost any place. I have a sense of the world as an inviting and exciting place. I grew up in a house where ideas were not threatening. You know, I was lucky to have Mormon parents who let me read Jim Allen and Glenn Leonard when I was eight, let me read Kierkegaard, even though I couldn't make any sense of it. One of the ways that I came to Jean and the Giant Joshua, which we were talking about earlier today a little bit, is that I read the Giant Joshua when I was about 11 and was completely distressed by it, right? I mean, I was right at the age where I was I had realized I wouldn't always feel that boys had cooties and, you know, that, that romance was something I might be interested in and that, that the notion of being married to a much, much older man, well, it, you know, it's a, it's a disturbing story for a, a mm -hmm. romantic child at, at the cusp of possible romance of her own. You know, I was very disturbed by the idea of polygamy and, you know, went to my father in tears and said, what is this? Why did we believe in this? This is terrible. And uh, to his everlasting credit, my father did not say, we'll talk about that when you're older or don't worry about it or anything like that. He said, okay, well, here's the pile of literature that I have from anti-Mormons about polygamy. Here's the pile that I have from fundamentalist Mormons in support of polygamy. And here are some of the official things that the church has published about polygamy. And we're going to start reading these. And so for about a year and a half, he assigned me a, a few chapters a week to read and discuss with him on Sunday nights. And then, you know, a year and a half later, when of course there was still no satisfactory intellectual resolution of these problems, and I'd been through five Mary Miss teachers with my insistent questions, um, <laughs> he was the bishop and he kept having to find replacement teachers. And so he finally sat me down one night and said, Christine, do you, uh, I think it's time for us to talk about how to live with unresolved questions, how to find peace, even when you don't have answers. And so we talked about ways to nurture your spirit and to find the things that do bring you joy and to revisit these questions, knowing that you might not ever figure it out and how to, how to be patient. 
I think he probably quoted Rilke about living the questions because he also speaks German and, and loves good poetry. So anyway, so I, I had this, this notion that peace and comfort could come on the far side of difficult knowledge and hard learning. And I always had that. And I think, I think Gene had that as a child. I don't think he got it from his parents, but he seems even, you know, in high school to have just always wanted to discuss these hard things. You read Bert Wilson's accounts of their even younger, you know, elementary school discussions of basically the big questions of existentialism. So I, I think I shared a certain fearlessness about ideas with him. I'm different from him in that I am not at all fearless about interpersonal conflict in the way that he was. Mostly, I think that serves me well. But, you know, I also, at the same time as I look at, at things that he did and think, oh, did you have to, you know, did you have to poke the bear quite that way? Maybe if you hadn't. But I also admire that fearlessness and worry that my lack of it is cowardice rather than, than wisdom. And the other thing that I think I probably share in common with him is just love of words, just the sheer joy of putting an idea into elegant language is something that, that I see him doing in his, in his essays. And I love his essays because in some ways they're not completely polished. Like he lets you, they are essays in the, the older sense in a way that contemporary sort of memoir essays aren't anymore. You know, he lets you sort of meander through his thought process with him. And it, they're about things rather than about his interior process. You, you see a mind at work on a topic in his essays in a way that I love. Which is your favorite essay? I really like Enduring, the one where he t talks about the sort of existential fears of his childhood. I also think why the church is as true as the gospel is, you know, if not the most beautiful essay, it's, it's one of his really central insights about Mormonism. If people were only ever going to read one thing of his, that's the one I would say. Can you tell us a little bit about it and this, this idea of kind of gospel pragmatism? Sure. The fundamental thesis of why the church is as true as the gospel is that uh, the gospel is a set of ideas and ideals for living, but that coming to a Christian understanding in seclusion is unfruitful and probably impossible. His idea is that the church is a mechanism for salvation because it forces us to, to try doctrine. There are other essays of his, like his letter to a college student, where he says, you know, the way to to handle questions, to handle the absence of testimony is not, not necessarily to pray harder and, and try to feel something different, but to do something. That's also in his essay, Enduring, this, this notion that action is an epistemological device for learning the truth of gospel ideas. So in that essay, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel, he talks a lot about his experience at Stanford of being a you know, graduate student with lofty ideas about politics that frequently brought him into conflict with his fellow congregants, but also resulted, the hashing out of those ideas also res resulted in loving relationships with people. But then he talks mostly about his experience as the branch president of a tiny branch in Minnesota when he was at St. Olaf's and the people in that branch who were struggling and who had, you know, lives that were more difficult than he had ever imagined possible and the ways in which he felt helpless 
to improve their lives and, and saw that his big ideas were useless to them. But what was helpful to them was to hold their baby so that a mother could rest for a little while or to just do simple things and show them that he cared. And he says that, you know, that his testimony, his, his commitment to Jesus started to mean something because he was living these questions. He was, he was doing these things rather than trying to intellectually sort them out. Uh, let's see. The other really beautiful idea in that essay is that he takes Paul's discussion of gifts and the, the less comely gifts. And he says that our neediness, our distress, our helplessness can be the best gifts that we offer in the church. Um, and that, that doing so is providing service in a different way than the sort of, you know, we, we often speak of service as though we're the people up above reaching down to help. And, and his idea is that these people whose gifts were of need and poverty and ignorance were the ones that the church really needed. So these ideas that he has here, the church is choose the gospel. What does that mean to you? How does that feel to you in your life? I think, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I was a lot like Jean at Stanford. I had gone to the Stanford of the East and had some big ideas of my own and loved batting them around with people who had similar lives. And I've often found that sort of the intellectual atmosphere of my childhood means that I don't fit in easily in lots of Mormon congregations. I, you know, discovered rather awkwardly that not everyone had the family home evening about lesson about how Joseph translated the Book of Mormon with his face in a hat. You know, it turned out that mentioning that in Relief Society was somewhat surprising to many people, and I had no idea. And so I have, you know, as he did, often found myself feeling weird and out of place in, in Mormon congregations. And that essay has been a touchstone for me, both, both to remind me to recognize the gifts that other people have to offer me, even when they're not the ones that are, you know, the ones I naturally reach for, like reading a great poem in a talk or, you know, the things that are easy for me to assimilate, that there are these other gifts people are offering me all the time that I have to work to notice. And then the other thing is that, you know, what I've got to offer is my dorky intellectual approach to Mormonism and, and to be frank about that and honest about what I have to offer instead of, you know, trying to out homemaking meeting any, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to do a good centerpiece ever. And it's good for me to not try to, to bring my real gifts such as they are and hope that people will accept them. Uh, I'm wondering if you can, I know that you're not a mind reader, but what do you think Gene would think about dialogue today? I think he would love it. I think he might love Taylor's vision of it. Uh, Taylor Petrie, who's the editor now, I think he might be more enthusiastic about Taylor's vision than he was about mine. I think he would have said I was too cautious and Taylor is braver in lots of ways. I think he would be thrilled at the range of people who are now doing Mormon studies. I mean, it, he published mostly white men because that's who was writing at the time. I struggled to find women who were writing and to encourage women who might write and to find members of color and, you know, people uh, from various backgrounds. It was still hard and, and it is hard now. It takes, takes active work, I know, but it's possible more. And I think he would be completely thrilled about that. I, I think he would be really happy about the directions that Mormon studies has, has grown in. 
even the ways that the church has very cautiously assimilated some of the insights from Mormon studies. You know, he would he would have been happy about the church's race and the priesthood essay, even even though it doesn't make the obvious citation to dialogue that it should have. He would have been gracious about it and thrilled that it happened. Same with the essays on polygamy. I think he he would feel good about some of those ideas that he first set out being carefully and piecemeal assimilated into official discourse. So now Mormon studies as a field has grown, but literature hasn't found the place in the larger field that I think that Gene envisioned. I mean, he he was a literature scholar and he saw Mormon literature as this well, big part of his interests. But today, you know, it seems like most of the Mormon scholars are in, in history and various social sciences and not so much in literature. What role do you see literature and literary studies playing in Mormon studies? It's a good question. And it's, it's somewhat puzzling to me, honestly. Um, I, w- I would think that Mormon literature in some ways would have an easier time finding an academic home, you know, at UVU or even at BYU than it has had, you know, in, in some ways, literature is one step removed from the most controversial doctrinal discussions, right? You can talk about the giant Joshua without digging all the way into section 132. You can do that. It's a, it's a way of getting one removed in the same way that, you know, doing history from a hundred years ago gives you one removed from contemporary debates in some ways. So it surprises me a little bit that it hasn't happened. And I, I suspect that it's partly just an artifact of the 90s culture wars that played out in English departments, not just at BYU, but everywhere. Gene saw this and he, he wanted to make an argument for the aesthetic value of, of Mormon literature. Even some of it that, you know, most literary scholars would look at and say, that's bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sentimental or it's didactic. I don't know that there's been another champion of Mormon literature as aesthetically valuable who's as articulate as, as Jean was. So, you know, maybe it's that we need a person. Although we do have, you know, people who are doing great things. I think there's always the problem of money, right? What gets institutional support can flourish and what doesn't is just bound to struggle. Well, let's, let's talk about the way that he approached Mormon literature. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in how you talked about his use of reader response theory in his literary analysis. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I don't have the sense that he was deliberately employing reader response theory, but that's, that's what his approach amounts to, right? He, he wants literature to do something to the reader. He's always concerned with the moral effect of literature, um, even more than the aesthetics. And he's, he's frank about that. He's also pretty frank about his allergy to most literary theory. He just doesn't like it and doesn't see the value. So he reads Shakespeare um, in much the same way as he reads the Book of Mormon, right? It's a collection of stories that are meant to have a moral effect on the viewer or the reader. And that's pretty much how he read everything. And so a journal entry from Joseph Millet that he found especially moving doesn't have to be elegant or poetic if it has the effect on the reader of of stirring their, their moral responsiveness to the story. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think he probably could have if he had wanted to. He, he could have turned to some of the early reader response theorists and justified his approach. But he never, I think he never felt the need to, partly because he was at BYU and this moral approach to literature was, was well suited to the, to the setting in a lot of ways. 
I thought it was interesting how you said it was fitting for a Mormon. It goes along with Nephi's likening things to yourself and the kind of Sunday school approach. When I first sort of thought that, I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's probably insulting to an English professor. Like, I wouldn't like to be told that I read German literature the way that, that I would read it in Sunday school. But I think he would not perceive that as a criticism or he wouldn't bristle at it because that, that really was what he regarded to be the, the most important function of literature. It's supposed to show us how to live better lives. And I wrote this really super short and terrible gloss. Uh, like it's the paragraph in my book that I'm most embarrassed about is the one about tr- trying to relate it to Schiller, who's this German romantic theorist who, who talks about the moral action of human beings being the most beautiful thing there is. You know, again, if he had wanted to, he could have turned to the German romantics or like Barthes or Iser to to justify his his way of approaching things. But it but it really is this the exact same way we read scriptures, right? You you read yourself into the story. So his his thing about Shylock, you know, is is that that we're supposed to read ourselves into the story and we're supposed to recognize in ourselves the bloodlust that arises in the characters and, and it, it carries us along until the moment when we realize, Oh my goodness, you know, when we have to realize, ah, I need to get off of this train, you know, the emotion and the elegance of this presentation is carrying me to a, to a bad place. And we're supposed to recognize that our moral duty is to, to stop. Yeah. From the times where I actually attended his lectures, those, I think that's the things I remember the most. He's talking about, we're we're supposed to be rooting for Hamlet's Hamlet and his revenge for a while until we realize what a terrible thing this was. And laughing at uh, the character in Twelfth Night, um, Malvolio, what was his name? Who they, yeah, they yeah. who they mock, and eventually, you know, he's this terrible character. He's he's a, he's a terrible person. But the revenge that the protagonists have on him is so terrible that we say, "Oh, wait a minute, that's wrong." Yeah, I actually I think I must have read that essay when I was in high school, or at least I tried to make a similar argument in an English paper about Heart of Darkness, that Kurtz is initially presented as sympathetic precisely so that we will empathize with him and then our condemnation of him will have more moral force because we've we've recognized him as, as someone that we could be like. And my English teacher didn't like it in high school thought I was wrong. And then she came up to me at my wedding reception and said, you know, I've been thinking and I think you might be right about Heart of Darkness. So anyway, I think it's a good approach to literature. Um, (laughs) At your wedding reception, that's great. (laughs) Everything's working out here today. (laughs) Back to another thing. He was drawn to Brigham Young when he was at the historical department, which is somewhat surprising for a Mormon liberal. You know, Brigham Young is, you know, a very authoritarian figure in a way. And so he writes a short biography of him in 1980. What was about Brigham's life and thought that appealed to Gene? I'm less sure that it appealed to him as that it was assigned to him. Ah. <laughs> I think Gene I think really needed a job, and that was the job Leonard Arrington had for him. But I do, I love the way that he finds, you know, Brigham, Brigham contained multitudes. And, and I don't think England is wrong to have discovered in him some of these ideas that go with that older strain of Mormon theology that has God as as our friend and someone that we're supposed to, to be like in, you know, real and and tangible ways. And so, you know, he's, he's certainly selective in his evidence of, Mm. of who Brigham Young is, but it's there, right. That, that part of Brigham Young is there. And I, and I think 
The other thing that's interesting is how, or, or that's a key insight he had about Brigham is how, how much Brigham loved and was close to Joseph. And so in a way, I think part of what England loved about Brigham is that he was so prolific in his writing. And it's, it's our best hope of getting close to Joseph is through Brigham's writing because Joseph didn't write that much. You know, people wrote down things that he said, but we don't, we just don't have the fulsome record of his thinking that we do of Brigham Young's. And, and I think, you know, that sort of oblique approach to Joseph is something that he really valued. Maybe getting away from Gene here a little bit, but I was very interested in how the role that Joshua played in your development and your way of thinking. And you were an editor at Dialogue and you saw lots of literature come by, personal essays and fiction. What other Mormon literature has had an impact on you? I've, uh, I love some of Phyllis Barber's work. Her How I Got Cultured, I think, is just a wonderful Mormon memoir. It's sort of the great aunt of the genre, maybe. One of the early pieces, and I love it. And I love some of her more recent stuff. She published an essay in Dialogue while I was editor about going to a cannery assignment at a moment when she was sort of reassessing her relationship with the church. And I, I love that as a piece of writing Part of what I love about it is how elegantly she balances memoir with somehow not seeming self-centered, mm. right? Which is a super hard thing to do in memoir and lots of people miss, aren't, aren't able to do that. There is a poem by Anna Kohler Lewis about Jesus coming to wash the dishes that sticks with me a lot. And I love some of um, R.A. Christmas's poetry. He's, he's sort of an obscure favorite. Um, the other person who nobody knows anymore, and I wish more people did, is Martin Clark. I love his little book of essays, Liberating Form. I, I just think it's one of the most brilliant, small explorations of how a, somebody with a great literary sensibility thinks about Mormon topics. Uh, James Goldberg, I, you know, I love a lot of his stuff. And, oh, I was just talking the other day with, with William Morris about his some of his fiction that I really love. I love the way that he plays with form and his mind goes in completely different directions than, than mine. And he has a real gift for putting his, his mind on the page in a, in a way that's accessible to, to somebody who's very different mm -hmm. from him. And I, I think that's a real gift. Thank you. That's great. Is there anything, anything else that you would like to say about Gene to close out? Any other just, just stories about him or ideas that he had that you think we should be thinking about more. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, I think that, that you wanted to ask about the notion of him as the last liberal hmm. Mormon. One of the things that I think is so interesting about him is that his liberal politics come organically out of his Mormonism. I think there's a way that, that lots of um, people with more, with a more conservative bent read progressive politics as always a corruption of Mormonism or an imposition from outside that like, yes, maybe you try to reconcile your progressive politics with your Mormonism, but progressive politics comes from out here. And I think the thing that is distinctive about Gene and, and the reason that I say he's the last liberal Mormon is that he lived at a moment when it was still possible to see a different potential trajectory for Mormonism, to see that, that these liberal political possibilities were also inherent in in Mormon teaching and Mormon doctrine and Mormon theology. You know that there were that there were possibilities for a much more expansive kind of theology that would be more open to the world and less sort of fearful and 
isolationist than than Mormonism sometimes is in its approach to the world. And that all came organically out of his Mormon convictions rather than from the outside as an attempt to reconcile something leftist that came from from elsewhere. Um, it's why I've bristled when I've been called a Harvard-trained feminist because I I wasn't. I never took a never took a women's studies class. I arrived at my feminism organically by reading the history of Mormon women and Mormon theology. And I think he he was the same way that his liberal impulses came truly out of Mormonism rather than being grafted in. Well, thank you very much. Now tell me, when does the book come out? I don't know precisely. Uh, the, the catalog says November, but I spoke with somebody at the University of Illinois Press today who said that it's going to the printer within the next two weeks. So hopefully maybe a little sooner than November, sometime in the fall. All right. Everybody order your books now. Well, Christine, thank you very much. Oh, it's fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. To hear more and to find other great content like Blair Hodge's Firesides, interviews about religion and culture with brilliant people who will fan the flames of your curiosity, go to dialoguejournal.com.